We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Chanae Ogwumike. I'm Lisa Leslie, and we're very excited to tell you about our new podcast with Blue Wire, Front and Center. Lisa and I are breaking down what's going on in our lives, in the world, and keeping it 100. We're also learning from amazing guests as well, like Emmanuel Acho. People that show love to me, I forever got their back. Vivica A. Fox. If the foundation isn't right, then the rest of it's going to go wrong from there. And more. Subscribe to Front and Center today. Listen up. All you ever ask for is an opportunity. You got it today. Where else would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rockpile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want Coach always talks about character. Um, you know, it's really not about how many you make. It's about what you do after you after a miss, after something goes wrong. Um, anyone can handle stuff when things are easy. Uh, it's just about uh, when something goes wrong, it's just about how do you handle it. You, know, you don't let it define you. Um, and you just do and you just trust everything that you've done in practice that week and you just um, put it to show. Uh, you just got to trust your process. Um, you know, one kick, if you miss, it is what it is. I mean, you practice I've, you know, you practice since you were a kid at what you do and you just don't, you I mean, it happens and you just got to move forward and, you know, self-correct and trust the guys and just trust yourself. That's really it. Don't let it phase you and just move on. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Rock Pal Report podcast. I am your host, Bill season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger. And that was Bill's kicker, Tyler Bass, from his post-game press conference after the Buffalo Bills beat the New York Jets by a score of 18-10. to 10. Chris, out of all the ways you thought that game was going to go, that was new. Yeah, uh, what was it? <laughs> we had eight field goal attempts. That was a new one, folks, for anybody out there who thought, oh, I've seen this game before. Oh, the Bills are going to play the Jets and they're bad and we're going to fight. No. You haven't seen that game before, have you? You have. You actually have not seen that game before since 1941. <laughs> it is the first time since 1941 Washington Redskins, Brooklyn Dodgers. I didn't stutter. Brooklyn Dodgers, the football team, where a team scored no touchdowns, won, and also didn't punt. Wow. Folks, we have 
a we've got a sizable show for you tonight because it's one of the most important weeks of Patri- the year. Patriot Week. It's Patriots Week. We've got a packed show. We've got a recap. We've got Mark Schofield. We've got Mark Schofield, one of our favorite guests, here to help us preview what is perennially a marquee matchup for the Buffalo Bills. Let's stop pussyfooting around about this and just get right into it. This week's Week 7 recap, Buffalo Bills 18, the Jets 10. Let me give you my stats to the game. Josh Allen. Josh Allen goes 30 of 43 for 307. No touchdowns, no picks, two sacks, and a 90 passer rating. Sam Darnold goes 12 of 23, good for 120, two picks, six sacks, and a 31.1 passer rating. Corey Bohorquez, zero punts. First time in his career and easiest paycheck he has ever earned. Total yardage, Buffalo Bills, 422, New York Jets, 190, 186 coming in the first half. (laughs) Bill's penalties, 11 for 106 yards. The Bill's defensive line, 20 tackles, one tackle for loss, five quarterback hits, three sacks, and one game-winning pick. Now, folks, I don't know how you watched the game. This was a first for us. We took the we took the Rockpell Report show on the road this weekend. Yeah, we got in our DeLorean. <laughs> the DeLorean. Went back to 1983. We drove out to Hilton, New York. Here's the thing. Potter, fellow season ticket holder of ours, he drives. I give him a lot of credit because, Chris, whereas you live 10 minutes around the corner from yeah. my house. I have actually have never... I, I knew Potter lived in Rochester. I didn't know where. So... Making that drive from his house, from your house to his house, was an eye-opener of what he's been doing. Every weekend. Every, yeah. Well, Every weekend, well, I'd say for the last when, two years. Yeah, when we've been able to yeah, attend we, football games. When we can attend football games every week, this kid gets in the car. Now, folks, we don't, we make, make no joke about it. We are at the stadium before sunup. Every single Bills game. Yeah, if we try to be there about 6.30. About 6.30, which means that we have to leave my house by 6, 10 after, which means that Potter has to leave his house an hour and a half before that just to get to my house and then help pack up the truck and leave. Yeah. So you're talking about a guy who gets up at 4 a.m. every single week to come to these Bills home games? So when he asks you to drive out to his house to watch a game, Chris, how do you say no? Yeah, we got to make that. We got to have that experience. And what I liked about it was that it was his first rodeo hosting. Now I've been hosting for years. I've been having people over to our house for Bills games. It was his first rodeo, and I watched him go through all the growing pains. Except his was worse because now everyone has kids. Oh yeah, there was. It was chaos. There was too many kids there. <laughs> and he was not prepared for it, as I expected he wouldn't be. But you know what? He did a great job. But what I loved about it was watching him see just how destructive children can be. Grabbing at knickknacks that he didn't realize were low-hanging. Uh, trying to stick things in outlets that he realized, I don't have outlet covers. Because I'm a single guy who owns a home. Why would I need to cover my outlets? The best was the tennis ball in the subwoofer. <laughs> a child got a tennis ball stuck in the, in the acoustic hole of one of his subwoofers in his living room for his surround sound system. I'm watching all this play out with just a sense of, like, satisfaction. I'll admit it. I even told him. I go, 
you when you said you were going to host, I said, you go learn today. You're going to find out all about. He goes, I didn't know. I didn't know it was going to turn into this. I said, I absolutely did. Yeah. And I celebrated. <laughs> Say, so, hey, cheers to Potter for having yeah. everybody over. Yeah. No, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even do that. Mostly because I don't I don't want to know. I don't want uh, Mike, Melissa, Allie, Potter to know where I live. <laughs> Why? Because they might show up here. Chris, contrary to popular belief. I don't want people knowing where I live outside of you, my parents and my girlfriend. Chris, you have the personality of a hornet. Trust me, nobody's coming over here to bother you when you don't want them. With that, we got to get into the game recap because the exper- the ambiance of the day was fun. It really did make the day more palatable because the game itself was frustrating as hell. And it's going to go down as the quote-unquote Tyler Bass game, right? That's what we're going to refer to it. I mean, if you asked, if you asked, Chris, at the onset of the 2020 season, which of our rookie draft class would break a long-standing team record, who would you have guessed it would be? I mean, you've got Moss. I mean, he could maybe... I don't get, know if I would have guessed anybody. I mean, you've got Moss. He could have gotten the rookie rushing yards or yards per carry for a rookie. Gabe Davis, maybe rookie yards after the catch or receiving touchdowns for a rookie. A.J. Epinesa, maybe could have set the sacks record as a rookie, although Bruce's six and a half is pretty stiff. For a rookie in the NFL, that's pretty good. Especially when you don't play uh, as much at the start of the season on a rookie deal under McDermott. It sure as hell wasn't the kicker. Right? <laughs> and because it's 2020, here we are having this conversation. I mean, in barroom Bill's history, this will go down as the Tyler Bass game. Our rookie kicker set a franchise record for field goal attempts in a single game and tied a team record for field goals made. Now, obviously, that's not an ideal way to win a football game, but it certainly was something to watch, given how unautomatic the kid was. In fact, it wasn't until this week that I realized how long it had been since a Bills kicker gave me real anxiety every time they step on the football field. What do you think about that, Chris? That feeling that you get when you have a, a kicker where you're like, whoa, no. See, I'm not there yet with him because he, he's new. And I like this whole, I like this whole idea of, of getting a rookie kicker because we have not done that in years. No, I mean, that's the thing. You think about how difficult it's been. We've talked about it in this podcast about how hard it is for rookies to push out incumbents. Look at Adam Vinatieri. Yeah, he, they still would have. If he hadn't retired on his own, he'd still have a job somewhere. Yeah, someone he, would bring him in. Yeah, it was he was taken over by former Bill Chase McLaughlin, mm-hmm. and then they they brought in undrafted signee uh, Rodrigo Blankenship from UGA, well, and then he beat out McLaughlin. Yep. So there's good and bad. The bad news: the kid wasn't perfect, and his misses came from what should be makeable distances of 37 and 45 yards. He had some mistakes, and he deserves some criticism for that. On both of his misses, he pulled them to the left. And while the second one looked like it might be good at first, then it kind of wiggled out. That first miss of the game was egregious. You know the you knew the moment the, the moment it left his foot. That thing's not making it through the uprights. But the good news is that he rebounded nicely from each of his misses landing a career-long of 53 yards, which probably would have been good from about 60 after his very first miss, and then he hit a chip shot 29-yarder after missing his second. 
Now, in the intro of the show, we heard Bass talking about that. First of all, he used the phrase trust the process, which means he's already in. He's already been indoctrinated. But that level of confidence is what you you want to see that out of a rookie at that position, considering how mentally tough it can be. And for anybody who questions that, why don't you just go ask Mike Vanderjack? Yeah, that's the guy who let one single postseason crushing miss mentally derail him for the rest of his short career. You can also throw Blair Blair Walsh into that category. That's a perfect example. Missing a 19-yard kick in the playoffs. And then he was never the same. Correct. He never went back to being a competent kicker after he missed that. Yeah, I think he. I think he was. He said it in the intro to the show. It's like it's you know it's what you do after a miss. Absolutely. Ultimately, without Tyler Bass, we wouldn't be have we wouldn't have the victory, considering the way our offense struggled to find the end zone. So it tickled me. It made me laugh to see not just tweets but actual articles from folks like the writers at the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle talking about how the Buffalo Bills need, not just should be, but need to go get a new kicker. Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. It jumped up a notch. It did, didn't it? You all need to calm the hell down. Imagine that, Chris, me telling other people to calm down. Yeah, that's never happened. One, he's a rookie. We talked about it earlier this season, about how the Bills have been trying to replace veterans with rookies to no avail at the kicker position for almost two decades. And then, two, there are incredibly few rookie kickers who even make the NFL since the start of the 2000s, much less anybody who found any real success. The fact that Bass can have misses and then turn around off the back of those misses, and to his point, hey, I missed a 39-yarder. Yeah? Watch me bury this one from 50-plus. I think the best part of it, well, I forget who who sent out the tweet, but after one of his kicks, he turned to the Jets' sideline and taunted them. As he should. It was amazing. Now, you brought this to my attention as we were watching the game together. Do you folks out there remember week one when Bass missed two field, he missed two field goals? Those attempts both came from... I want to say the middle of the field, but they were close to the right hash. And he pushed them both wide. When you watch the action that he kicks with, the ball tends to hook off of his foot from left to from right to left. Is that fair, Chris? We've watched enough of it now. Yeah. Which then makes sense when you think about where his misses come from. The arc and the natural movement of his kicks pushes the ball in a direction that if he's overthinking it or feels like he has to try and overcompensate for that for the hook that his follow-through puts on his kicks, you're going to get some wonky trajectories. He tried to bring those first, in that first game, he missed wide to the right, but you could see the ball was just starting to trail in, and he was close. Like, we were in close when we missed those two first two field goals for Bass. This time when he missed... He was, you could tell he had changed things up. His approach was different. The arc of the ball was a little different, but because it's at the same point of the field, he still ends up missing. At the same time, all of his makes come from that left hash, Chris. It's going to be interesting to see if the team focuses on setting him up on the left hash more often going forward. I feel like down the stretch of this Jets game, you watched when Josh Allen's trying to run the ball on a quarterback draw, 
inside the 30. He does so, but he does it to the left. He has an opportunity to run to his right, but he stays to his left, probably knowing, I mean, who knows? Maybe that's something they're talking about. Stay to the left because this is where our kicker's great from. I don't know. But all I know is that anybody out there bashing this kid, shame on you. Because we owe him. We owe him this victory, right? Yeah, yeah, that would be you, the way you were speaking of him on Sunday. Until I saw the final product and I go, all right, this kid, he's just going to keep hacking away at it. When he missed the yeah, his first miss, I was pissed. The second miss, I'm like, okay, that's egregious. But then he just kept drilling him, and it's like, okay, all right, he's mentally tough enough to hack this. I don't remember what the 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 distance was on fourth down for our kicks, but I do give credit to McDermott for sticking with him because you know, let's say he you know he made what he missed the first one, made the second one, but what if the second one it was like fourth and four? Would McDermott have lost trust in pass and tried to go for it in that situation? Maybe. And who knows? Then maybe not we're not here celebrating the fact that we're five and two. I don't know. But here's one of the questions that's been raged about on Twitter all week. Why did it have to be the, t- the Tyler Bass game? Why did this have to happen? And how the hell did the Bills fail to find the end zone against a zero win football team? Obviously, people want to point to a few plays that coulda, shoulda, woulda been touchdowns. I get it. I, I've, of course, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. But I spend a lot of time talking to podcasters. And we have guys like Greg Thompson, who came on the show last week, who would, he's routinely trying to talk me off a ledge in terms of how I feel about the game of football. And he's tr- Sunday, he was trying to cheer me up or trying to make me feel better about the this with this concept of well, this play could have been a touchdown, and this one could have been, and this one probably should have been if Tyler Croft doesn't fall down. So really, the Bills' offense wasn't that bad. I'm not interested in any of that. I like to deal in facts and figures. And when I was confronted with this, Chris, I did what I always do. (laughs) That's right. I made a chart. Woo! I drug up all of the plays for the Buffalo Bills... I took every play from the game and I truncated it down into every play the Buffalo Bills ran inside the Jets' 35-yard line. I'm left with 27, so so it's a total of 27 plays. 27 plays inside the 35 for the New York Jets. And when you take out the, (laughs) when you take out the kicks by Bass and the Josh Allen kneel down, You're left with 19 plays. Of those 19 plays that the Buffalo Bills ran inside the 35-yard line of the Jets, the Bills got zero yards on nine of them, which is almost 50%. Of the 10, quote-unquote, successful plays, the Bills only managed 30 total yards. I mean, that's when you take into account the 11-yard loss on that ridiculous, ridiculous running play. The ill-timed wide receiver pitch or end around or whatever the hell that was supposed to be to Isaiah McKenzie. I don't like that guy. (laughs) I know you don't. And when you look at the nine plays that got zero yards, all but one of them were pass attempts by Josh Allen. And on those eight pass attempts, four of them were 10 or more yards in the air at the time they were thrown. 
You're not talking screens or dump-offs or, hey, we're going to throw into the flat and let the running back try to get yards after the catch. Legitimate passes down the field into the end zone when they had more real estate than that to work with. Meanwhile, the running backs received just three carries inside the 35-yard line all day, and none of them came until the fourth quarter. That doesn't sound like a recipe for success, does it? No, it doesn't. So when you think about why Tyler Bass had to bail us out, good football teams convert in those situations, and the Bills have become so one-dimensional on offense that even against poor secondaries, you can clearly have struggles. And I think the issue is twofold. One, your offensive coordinator is now just clearly steering away from the problems that your lack of rushing prowess has created. Rather than trying to find a solution to why the Bills can't run the football, he's now just not doing it. And that's discouraging because it means that we're likely to see more plays like the one on Sunday. We're on third and one inside the 10-yard line. The Bills went past and they didn't run. Chris, every single available route went straight to the end zone. Nobody ran a route to the flat. Nobody ran a route that could get them a first down and get them four more plays inside the 10. Throw to the end zone. That's, you can't even blame the quarterback for that because the play wasn't designed to ever get a first down. That is incredibly frustrating. I had, I, I had flashbacks to Rick Dennison. One of your favorites. And then you look at your, you got to look at your quarterback and you say to yourself, okay, He's pressing to try to make big plays rather than just taking what the defense gives him. Or by he's also pressing in the sense that he's he's not using his legs anymore, Chris. Yeah, I want to say the last couple of weeks you've been yelling about 2018 Josh Allen. Think about this, though. Coming into this season, Josh Allen was tied with Saquon Barkley for rushing touchdowns. Do you want to know why? Because when the Buffalo Bills got in deep... Inside the 10-yard line, Josh Allen running the football was usually our best play. Josh Allen running the football, if he didn't have an immediate option open, was the most one of the most dangerous plays in football. This season, he's standing back and trying to... He, it's almost like he refuses. I don't know how much of that is the product of that shoulder injury. But it's, made, it, it's taken away something that used to give our offense teeth. That is going to be a storyline to watch for the rest of the season at this point. I mean, if, if we have to find a way to convert when we get that close to the goal line. And when we get in the red zone, Chris, you have to convert. If the Bills only have more than just a puncher's chance against the better teams in the league, they have got to get that figured out because if you play like that in the red zone against most teams... With right now, look at the upper echelon teams in the NFL: Seattle, Arizona, San Francisco, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Oh wait, they're all on our schedule. Yeah, you settle for field goals over touchdowns against those guys, they'll eat your lunch. Look at the New England Patriots game from this past weekend. That's how you're going to end up if that's the way you play this game. <sighs> and the penalty trend. If there's anything else I'm frustrated about, the penalty trend continues. The Bills set a season high with an absurd 11 penalties for 106 yards, and now they're cemented as the third most penalized team in the NFL in both total flags and yardage. 
And here's the worst part, Chris. We're third in the NFL in offensive pre-snap penalties, directly responsible in this game for a touchdown coming off the board, and it's happened now twice in our last three games, where a pre-snap procedural penalty costs us a touchdown. It marks the sixth time in seven games that we've been assessed more penalty yards than our opponent. The only one that we weren't on the losing end of was KC, and they didn't need the help. (laughs) Of our 11 penalties, seven were committed by our guys in the trenches, on offensive line and defensive line. That last one's probably the most frustrating. I mean, we've learned that the Bills are not yet an elite football team, but they're an up-and-coming team. And you're going to struggle, even even if you were a very good football team, if you give up a whole football field's worth of penalty yardage, you're going to struggle against any professional team. Any team. And that's what the Bills did on Sunday. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I don't really, uh, I don't really like this. It's like it's a it's a mental thing. I don't like these penalties. Ed Hockley's not calling these games, is he? No. <laughs> and then you look at two of them. I mean, Sunday, another touchdown taken off the board for a guy not lining up properly before the snap on the offensive line. That's infuriating. How do you not know where the fuck you're supposed to be? And then Zimmer, newly signed defensive tackle Zim, Justin Zimmer. And his needless, completely needless hit on Sam Darnold after his interception to Dane Jackson. Not only is it unnecessary, but instead of us having the ball at midfield with 40 seconds to work with and a potential shot at going down the field for a touchdown, now you're back at your own 30. And you're just hoping that somehow before the clock runs out, you can get into field goal range. Those little, it's these little things. And that's the thing that's infuriating because it's a lack of. That 15 yards makes a huge difference. It's a lack of discipline. And that's the thing that's going to keep it. First of all, it'll keep teams like the Jets in close games with you when they don't deserve to be there. And against teams like the upper echelon of the NFL, you will not stand a chance if you beat yourself this way. The problem is that it's getting worse week over week. And I don't know how you fix that. There's a deterioration happening here. Yeah, that's and that's like a, a, a coaching thing. There's any, to eliminate mental mistakes, mental mistakes like this. If there's anything I can hang my hat on, it's the the tale of two halves in the Bills' defensive line. I mean, that that's essentially where my gripes. I was talking to Russ Brown, national scout for CoverOne.net, host of Cover their Cover One Draft podcast last night, as I was rewatching the football game. Now, I'm never the guy. Chris, I'm not, quote-unquote, film study guy. I'm no. never going to do that. No. I drink too much. I have too short of an attention span. ADHD's a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And your liver doesn't allow it. No. I essentially asked him for confirmation as to whether what I think I'm seeing matches what he sees as an objective observer who watches our team. I mean, he's a Lions fan. He, he's no stranger to bad defensive line play. He confirmed pretty much everything I pitched to him, which made me feel good. <laughs> made me feel good, considering I don't have the pedigree of the guys who work over at Cover 1. That one of the biggest defensive problems that we have this season is that where our defensive ends are still getting penetration. But look at Jerry Hughes. He entered weeks five or six with one of the highest win rates of any defensive lineman in the NFL, Yet he was one of the lowest in terms of actual sack production or pressure production because guys just run away from him. 
and there's nobody else helping him clean up the play after he beats his man. Our defensive tackles haven't been playing with enough physicality to make anything happen. The most common thing I see is that rather than them occupying blockers and allowing our linebackers to flow around to them, around them to make plays, or penetrating into the backfield and actually disrupting a play, they just end up moving laterally a lot. They get pushed around, especially at the point of attack on running plays. And that lateral movement is allowing blockers to easily get to the second level on our linebackers, forcing difficult arm tackle and drag tackle attempts. I mean, how many times did I call Trey Edmonds Paul Pazlesny? It must have happened at least a half dozen. Oh, uh, it's been all season you've been calling him that. But it's because I'm watching a guy who, instead of taking on runners... That's a great tackle, now it's second and five. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's a great tackle, it's first down. Exactly. (laughs) You're tackling them five, six yards downfield, drag tackling them as they run past you. That's not what an impact linebacker is supposed to do. But it's not just his fault because this, this defensive tackle group is not protecting them. They're not keeping them clean. And it's frustrating to watch happen game after game after game. I mean, they've had flashes... Oliver and Jefferson were touted in the preseason for their pass rush win rates, and they lead all defensive tackles and pressure to this point on the team. But it's not consistent enough, and so far the two of them have only gotten together for four quarterback hurries and two sacks. That's not good enough. If there's one story here, it's the the play of the Bills' defense and the first signs of real defensive adjustments I've seen all season or any elevation of play by a specific defensive unit over the course of a single game. They played for much of the first half, like the team that we've watched just get their shit kicked in for the last few weeks. They had nothing going. And in doing so, they allowed Sam Darnold time because they couldn't pressure the A-gap. Sam Darnold had time to find his wide receivers, and Frank Gore was averaging 5.7 yards per carry in the first half. Yeah. Gore hasn't done that since his rookie year in 1972. It's the reason they had an early lead in that football game. They came out of that tunnel at halftime and brought such a different energy to the football game. And the effects of it, I mean, it's, it's not just on tape, but it's all over the stat sheet. First of all, they controlled the line of scrimmage. The Jets only ran the ball four times in the second half. Hilarious. Probably because Frank Gore got tired. Yeah, because he's old. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens, right? Like, eventually, your grandfather, he you take him to the mall. He has a long day. It's a big day for him. We bought pants. We walked the whole upper level. He got China. He got Panda Express. Yeah, <laughs> and now a, he needs a lay down. Yeah, he'll be like one of those guys at McKinley Mall. They, they go there <laughs> in the morning, and they just walk the whole mall. And because it's the McKinley Mall here in Hamburg, there's nothing in there. It's not like he's buying anything. In fact, if anything, that's the perfect place to drop off old people who want to walk, but you don't want them spending money. Yeah. <laughs> Four rush attempts, and only one of them generated more than three yards. That's pretty good, right? It allowed our linebackers and defensive backs to finally make good on those blitz attempts. I mean, coming into the past few weeks, the Bills and yet had no pressure. Just, I mean, pro football focus, if you... If you like those people, I wouldn't know half of what they produce because Sam Monson has us blocked. Cheers. Oh, yeah. Cheers. (laughs) You're welcome, America. (laughs) 
when you look at what happened, the Bills had been blitzing more than any other team in football and yet had almost no pressures to show for it. In the second half of this game, when the defensive line decided to start playing football, our linebackers and defensive backs were finally making good on those blitz attempts. Two of their four sacks in the second half were a combination of a linebacker and a defensive back. had nothing to do with the D-line, but it had everything to do with them. And it forced mistakes from the Jets. The five Jets possessions, only two ended in positive yardage. And 24 plays yielded four yards, which averages out to six inches per play for the New York Jets in the second half. Six inches, Chris. There are high school football teams out there that can get six inches per play. And they don't get to cash checks. The defensive tackles were visible in terms of no longer moving laterally, holding their ground, and in some cases, actively being disruptive. Like, Quentin Jefferson had a great play on that where we stopped him when they went for it on fourth. Yeah. Quentin Jefferson flashing into the backfield to disrupt the play. And the trickle-down effect to the defensive ends, the linebackers, the coverage units, it was glaring. We became a different football team the second those guys got their shit together. The contrast couldn't have been more stark from the first half to the second. And in my opinion, the play of the defensive line, that proved it. It's key to not just a touchdownless victory on the road against a hapless New York Jets team, but to this defense regaining some semblance of being the unit that we thought they could be two months ago. If they can find some consistency on that front, things might just work out for these 2020 Buffalo Bills. Chris, our hero of the game is probably the guy who brought the most energy to the game on the front line. That's defensive end Jerry Hughes. Here's the deal. I'm the best there is, plain and simple. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I piss excellence, and nobody can hang with my stuff. Uh, you know, I'm just a, just a big, hairy American winning machine. Chris, for all of his hidden individual success this year, Hughes has been a source of a lot of criticism. Is that fair? Yeah. One thing I haven't seen from him a lot this year is his uh, 15-yard on sportsmanlike. Right? Yeah. Yeah, you haven't seen that. So with that in mind, it was nice to see him not only continue to flash and do the things that he's been doing all year, but finally have it result in some impactful plays. And I'd be hard-pressed to think of anybody else who changed the course of this game more. First of all, on the stat sheet, the guy finishes the game, what, first of all, six tackles, which, when you look at everyone else on the roster, Jordan Poyer had six tackles. A.J. Klein had six tackles. That's it. One's a safety in a game where the quarterback was throwing a lot. One of them's a linebacker. The fact that your defensive end has as many tackles as those guys, tied for the team high in the game, shows you just how active he was at the line of scrimmage. He finishes with two sacks. One of them, just moments before the biggest play of the game, the interception to seal the win. On the field, you notice Jerry Hughes as the most dominant defensive end on the field for us, right? Yeah. And then it's off the field. We retweeted it. Go to at Rockpile Report. Give us a follow. But look for the story by Thad Brown from WROC-TV. Leslie Frazier was talking to the media about how Hughes, not only running his own thing today with the players, but 
in the run-up to this football game over the last week, he's apparently been holding his own not-coach-mandated film sessions. Players only. Just him and the defensive line watching film together. He took the initiative to start that. No one prompted him to. No one pushed him to do it. Where are they doing this? They have masks on? <laughs> are they six feet apart? Listen, I'm not narc. I listen, I, I, if I'm anything, I'm no narc. They've been doing this over the last week with the defensive line, but also the fact that they lost a lot of leadership over the last couple of years. Lorenzo Alexander, Kyle Williams. People were starting to worry who was going to step up and fill that void. This season, Tremaine Edmonds was looked at as the guy who would maybe fill that role, and right now he's fighting the very game of football itself. On Sunday, according to Leslie Frazier, Jerry Hughes was the most vocal leader on the sidelines for this team. He held them together. Chris, if that's not a hero, I don't know what it is. And then, our zero. I had a hard time picking one. But there was one play that sticks out like a sore thumb, and that's right tackle Daryl Williams. You folks fell on your face. You get an F minus in my book. Yeah, you didn't know what to do here for uh, zero. And then you asked me, and I said, well, Daryl Williams allowed that fumble to happen because he got beaten like a drum. Do you remember I almost threw my child? <laughs> that's, that's not shocking. It was one of those situations where I'm holding my kid and I see that play, and I want to, like... You don't, have, you don't have a beer to throw. No, my fists clench, and I hold my kid a little bit tighter, because in my head I'm like, oh, man, do I want to throw something right now, but I've got a baby in my hands, and you can't do that! It's frowned upon! <laughs> Nobody throws a baby to the corner. <laughs> it was the most infuriating play of the day, in a day that was full of them. Yeah, and we're I think we're just a couple yards either in or outside of the red zone. <sighs> Chris... Final thoughts as we close the book on this chapter of Bill's football. Well, I, w I would say the whole way home from Rochester, because we rode together, which was probably a bad idea. Oh, it was terrible. That I had to be in the same car with you for an hour and 15, 20 minutes, but you were just bitching the whole way. You are one of the worst people to watch a football game. I told you, if we were like 6-0 and and shut out every opponent, you'd still have a problem. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's oh, so when it wasn't pretty offensively, the defense sh kind of showed up in the in the s second half, and then we also uh, got a really good look at Tyler Bass if he's going to stick around past the season. If you had told me before the game that the Bills would hold the Jets to under two hundred yards that Allen was going to throw for more than 300 and that we'd post six sacks and win the game by more than a touchdown, I'd have thanked you for making my Sunday more relaxing. Instead, none of that was apparent in the aftermath. I was a monster. Because I was unhappy about the way that it happened. I didn't like the way the win happened, even though we got it. It was frustrating to me that for a third straight week, this Bills team came out and played an undisciplined, technically unrefined brand of football, even though it ended in a win. And that's, I guess, one of my biggest takeaways from this. That frustration that we all felt in the aftermath of that, that's what you call progress. I lost a Seagram's bet week one of this year. The last time we played the New York Jets, because I bet that I made the bet with you 
on the fly that Josh Allen did not have a 300-yard game in him. Yeah. Do you want to know why? It's zero faith. Because I've watched decades of quarterbacks fail to accomplish that. And the celebration people gave him for it was incredible. Yet in the immediate aftermath after the Jets game this week, nobody cared about the 307 yards he threw for. Imagine that. A Bills quarterback throws for 300 yards and no one seems happy about it. (laughs) Somehow that's not the story of the day. In 2019, the Bills played a sloppy game against a sloppy Tennessee Titans team and eked out a one-score victory that landed them another conference victory they'd need later in the season when it came to the postseason formula. And ultimately, it was another W. Were you as fans not happy about that? Considering all the shit I took on social media, the flack, the ratioing, the ratioing, the sass that I took from Bill's Twitter for voicing the fact that I was pissed about the way that game went, I can tell you that hundreds of you were. Literal hundreds of you. Chris, that game gave birth to our favorite gif of me falling off the podium. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorites. I was incensed when the Bills beat the Tennessee Titans because in my head, I'm like, this team's frauds. They're terrible. They, the quarterback couldn't throw for, uh, didn't didn't put up yardage. We It took missed field goals. He threw interceptions. He This was bad. That was bad. Bah, 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 bah. And everyone told me I was being crazy. Now, we're, we're here, Chris, in a game where Josh Allen threw for 300 yards, <laughs> where our offense essentially did whatever it wanted, and in a game where for the entire second half, you literally watched the Jets just chase themselves in circles. There was no offensive production there to be had. The game was never in threat, and yet no one was happy. I mean, no one likes a good post-Bills game rage more than me. But that frustration that you feel after winning a game like that, that's a sign. I mean, it's expectations, Chris. And when's the last time we were allowed to have those as Bills fans? Oh, it's been a while. Yeah, and they're a bitch because sometimes you get let down. But for the first time in a long time, we as a fan base have them. Are there signs to be worried about? Yeah, probably. I mean, there's some negative trends here. The lack of running the ball, the penalties, all of these things. Will that sort of performance that we put on Sunday pass muster against the elite teams in the NFL? No, we've already watched it fail twice. But ultimately, after playing one of the ugliest and most undisciplined games the Bills could have played, we still got a win and we're 5-2 and two with a two-game cushion on a division lead. And we're pissed about it. You can disagree with me. I mean, that's the beauty of opinions. But damn it, if at least on this podcast, I choose to see it as growth from a team that's quote-unquote just happy to be here to a team that's expecting to win every week. And if that isn't more fun than anything we've done for the last 15 to 20 years, then I don't know what the hell is. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. 
You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides you powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to give you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job posts, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offered valid through December 31st. Football is back in full swing. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word bet online your online sportsbook experts all right chris we won so we don't have to do uh people who have it worse than us this week nope <laughs> I, I was gonna pick uh mike nolan oh yeah for getting tabasco in his in his cowboys yeah. defensive coach that's cute put reaper on your finger and jam it in your eye socket yeah we'll see who's a man listen <laughs> I, chris we can't enfor- enforce our stupidity on other people Right, but that is hilarious that a coach had to cancel a Zoom call for getting Tabasco sauce in his eye. Yeah, they had to take a small break. <sighs> Man, it feels good. Five and two on top of the division, and this is the week, Chris. Big week. Usually, this is the game that feels like it's for all the marbles. Yeah, Patriots week. Our week eight preview: New England Patriots versus the Buffalo Bills. Time: one p.m. Eastern Standard. Place Bill Stadium Orchard Park. Call on the call. We have Ian Eagle, Charles Davis, and Evan Washburn. Hello, I've never heard of you before. I don't know how you've not heard of any of those people. They're quite reputable. Charles Davis, I mean, I know you don't play video games, but Charles Davis, I believe, is now the voice of Madden. So he's on he's on Madden the Madden video games and Evan Washburn is just he's too pretty to be on television. He should be doing something else. The Bills are currently three and a half point favorites to win the football game. No, we shouldn't be fav- we shouldn't be favorite uh, favorite against New England until we beat them. Three and a half point favorites. When's the last time we were favored over New England? Uh, probably nineteen ninety one. It's been a while. Injuries of note, the Buffalo Bills are coming into this week watching John Brown, wide receiver who was held out of last week's game, tight end Dawson Knox, Cody Ford, uh, Josh Norman, and Levi Wallace. Those are a lot of names, Chris. There's a lot there, although people talk about Levi Wallace potentially coming back to practice this week as soon as tomorrow. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Obviously, that bodes well if we can get Wallace back. I mean, Dane Jackson played well last week. Played really well. Yeah. But. You don't want to put too much on his plate. Yes. Especially now that there's film out there on him that some jerk off like Bill Belichick can't wait to exploit. 
For New England, things are murky. Offensive lineman Jermaine Illuminor. Or Illuminor. Naga, Naga, Naga to play. Because he's on the IR for one more week. He was their right tackle. Taking over for the opted-out Marcus Cannon. Offensive lineman Joe Tooney. Turned his ankle last week, left the game, did not return. Same thing with rookie offensive tackle Justin Heron. So they're thin on the offensive line. Wide receiver Julian Edelman, knee injury. Knee's probable, but he's battling through something. And wide receiver Nikhil Harry was knocked out. Left the game with a head injury and did not return. Then I'd probably consider him to be out for this week. Usually they take... Taking concussions a lot more serious lately. I don't know if you heard, but I wouldn't expect Nikhil Harry to play. The craziest thing about this game to me, Chris, is that it's unfamiliar territory for New England Patriots fans. We talked about it in last week's AFC's Roundup podcast with Lockdown Patriots host Mike DeBate. The Patriots are in a position they haven't been in since 2002. And while there are multiple factors at play, they can be summed up by simply calling the 2020 New England Patriots unbillicheckian. First of all, in losing to Denver, they broke their streak of having a positive record in or beyond October that goes back literal decades, 255 games they've held that for. How crazy is that? That's crazy. In that game, their defense made plays, but unlike in years past with Tom Brady, their offense had no ability to capitalize. And then, prior to the San Francisco game, Pat's Pulpit, the SB Nation page for New England, They posted the second biggest drop in their SB Nation's league-wide fan poll, showing their positivity regarding the team and the fan outlook. With just 58% participating fans feeling good about the future of the Patriots, compared to 91% the week before. And I'm sure after getting slaughtered by San Francisco, it's got to be even lower than that, right? Yeah. There's some overarching themes here from week to week that I think have Pats fans on edge from everything that I've read. First of all, they have yet to play a game without a turnover this year, and they're getting worse. It started with one, what were they, three over the first three weeks. Now they've had 11 over the last three. That's not good. They've entered week seven with just two passing touchdowns. How does that even happen? I have no idea. I mean, even the Jets have more passing touchdowns than that. That's ridiculous. There's so much here that we don't know. But luckily, we have one of the best in the biz, our friend, to come on here to this podcast, make time out of his busy schedule to help walk us through it all. We have Mr. Mark Schofield on the line with us tonight. Sir, it occurred to me today... As we were sitting here getting ready for this, I was thinking about the, the, the despair and just things that were going on in Foxborough. And I thought to myself, do I remember, I think it was season two of Scrubs, where where the, the, uh, Colin Hay has the song uh, Overkill. And yeah. the whole thing was JD and he's trying to repair everyone's friendships and they're running around. And that's when it occurred to me, like, this relationship between the three of us. This is like Scrubs. Chris is JD, clearly, if you look at his hair. Clearly. I obviously, I'm, I'm cool. I'm smooth. I'm Turk. And you are our Dr. Perry Cox. I can live with that. 
We show up and we bother you about all kinds of football things, and you fight your way through frustration to talk to us about them. Look, I, I've done a, a done a Perry Cox. I don't know if I can conjure it up right now, but I have done a Perry Cox invitation on my show, and maybe I'll bust out a little bit later. But I appreciate that. I understand it. Um, I'm here to mentor in a way. I'm here to guide you, young men and you gentlemen, in a way. And if I have to fall on my face or make a mistake to make you guys learn a lesson, then that's what I have to do. So when we are, we're talking about previewing this upcoming game, which every Bills fan everywhere, this is the game. This is your Super Bowl. Because usually when you're a Bills fan, this is the only thing you actually have look, to look forward to in terms of we're going to have a meaningful football game. But over the last few years, our team has gotten better, and yet you guys have still managed to make this must-watch TV for every Bills fan everywhere. And yet, things couldn't feel more different entering this game than they ever have before. Now, some of that's not your fault. I mean, obviously, <laughs> Tom Brady leaving is a problem. <laughs> it created it created Perhaps some problems. A slight little inconvenience, just throwing inconvenience will. into things. But right now, one of the things you guys are dealing with in Foxborough that I find incredibly interesting is the divisive case of Cam Newton. I mean, it seems like just yesterday, ESPN analysts were telling anyone who would listen that Cam Newton signing with you guys in Foxborough was going to make you not just the best team in the AFC East, but dark horses for another Super Bowl appearance. Now, at the time, I said it was wild conflation. <sighs> Looking back at it, I, I was right. And I almost I feel bad to the degree that I was right. I mean, as I sat home watching Sunday's game play out with Cam Newton sitting on the bench with a stat line of less than 120 yards, 60% completion percentage, no touchdowns, and three picks, I was pretty pleased with myself. And that performance, it kind of fits into what, for Patriots fans, feels like a slow descent into hell of a trend in terms of Cam's regression since the season kicked off. Three straight 200-yard games. Three straight weeks of declining passer rating. He was a 73.8 against Las Vegas. He was a 51.6 against Denver. 39.7 against San Francisco. Now, obviously, competition got a little bit stiffer there. But three straight weeks of declining third down percentage. And at a 2-4 and four record, <laughs> your scoring is just not there. What is happening with Cam Newton in your mind right now? Well, it's interesting, Drew. We have this tendency, and I say we, all of us sort of in football media, to overreact to games, to events, particularly early in the year, and miss the bigger meaning of them. Let's think about to one of the previous times I was on. It was after that Seattle game back in week two, right? Yep. And I remember being on with you and thinking and making the case that now they've got a vertical passing game. They can throw down the field. They can throw haymakers. I use those exact words. And I wasn't alone in sort of NFL media saying, look, the Patriots offense, they can throw the ball vertically now. It's a vertical passing game. Cam Newton's brought this element. That game, looking back at it now, I think taught us more about the Seattle defense than anything else. That Seattle defense, not really that good. I think that was the true lesson of that game. And it overshadowed our perhaps our rose-colored glasses here in Patriots land, our view of what was really happening. This is a bad offense right now. 
and I rewatched that game against San Francisco, guys, and there's no quick fix. There's no one solution. There are guys open downfield, and he's not throwing the ball. He's got time to throw, and there's nobody open. He's got time to throw, and guys get open, but he doesn't pull the trigger, and then he gets pressured. He gets pressured, and there's nobody open. He gets pressured, and guys are open, and he can't get there. There's a lot of problems. There's no one quick fix. A lot of people have been texting me, do you bench Cam? <laughs> Why? Have you seen Jared like, Stidham? <laughs> every game he's played, Jared Stidham has thrown an interception. So if that's not the answer. I don't think you could go out, well, could they trade for a Julio Jones? Could they trade for an A.J. Green? Maybe, but I don't think that fixes it right away. That's one guy. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You guys could just trade for Muhammad Sanyu again. That worked so well. Yeah, that worked out so well last year. I mean, and that was the moment we should have known. You know, again, looking back, that was perhaps a moment we should have known that this isn't going to end well. But as far as what's up with Cam right now, I think specifically to Cam, he's not trusting his eyes. There are opportunities to make throws and he's not making them. Mechanics, there were never a finer point with him. They are starting to break down a bit. Well, and this you know, is something I want and this is something I want to dig into into in detail with you because I want to give you this. He's quoted as saying that he's quote unquote pressing right now. And he's said a lot of things about I'm I'm not kidding, the quote unquote aura that's around him and at one point he actually used this phrase I have fun playing this football game but the performances here hasn't been somewhat delightful for me to have fun in doing so now as someone who studied journalism and writing I cringe at the construction of that sentence Yeah. and as a football fan I cringe at figuring out what it is he's trying to say because it sounds like he's saying that it's Oh, no, it's it's not my because he, he says, hey, it ain't my mechanics, so, but I'm having fun. These games just haven't been that much fun, and that's why I'm not doing so well. He constantly claims that it's not his mechanics. Now, you, as a former quarterback and someone who does so much film work with guys like Nate Geary, guys like Matt Waldman, you've watched dozens, if not hundreds of quarterbacks from a processing, a mechanics, and an execution standpoint. You would know better than most people. What is going wrong with Cam Newton right now? I mean, I, I referenced a tweet that I tagged you in from Evan Lazar yep. regarding Cam and the breaking the chain while throwing it with his hips wide open, which just, I mean, it, it was like it was like you stand flat-footed with both feet forward and try to overhand lob a ball to someone. Yep. What's I, happening with Cam right now? You know, you mentioned mechanics, process, and execution. Those are probably three of the critical components of playing the position. All three have problems right now. You know, the processing, there, I, I did a video. It's on YouTube right now. I'll be at Pat's Pulpit on Wednesday where I go through six plays from that game. And on one of them, he makes the right read eventually, but he gets to the answer late. You know, he initially wants to throw to Edelman on a crosser. Safety jumps it, so he pulls it down. Then he works the two-man concept, the out and the flat from the running back. Both of them are open initially. And if he comes from the first read and throws on that quick hitch to the either the second or the third read, either one, you're going to be okay. But he waits for another extra second. All that does is give guys time to react to it. And then he makes a bad throw. It's poorly placed. White has to make an awkward adjustment. It gets stopped on third and four. So the process and speed, 
that's an issue. And that's probably a function of being in a new offense, the lack of training camp, OTAs, preseason, all that stuff like that is having an impact here. You know, then there's the mechanical side. And you that video that Evan did talked about breaking the chain, which Evan and I have talked about before. You know, it, it's supposed to be one fluid movement from toes to release point. But when you step wildly in the bucket and basically go parallel to your target and then try to throw the football, it breaks the fluidity between your upper body and your lower body. Another way to think of it, remember Tyree Jackson, the Buffalo quarterback? Yes. The tall kid yes. with the long overstride. Tall quarterbacks also have a similar break in the throwing chain. And Newton's tall too, 6'6". When you overstep towards your target, you lock up that front leg and it physically breaks your body almost. Like try it sometime. Try to step and throw while locking up your front leg. You will feel your body sort of push back against that throwing motion. That's the break in the throwing chain. You can also have it when you step in the bucket like Newton did in that throw Evan highlight. Well, so and that's why the passes fall short, right? Yeah. That's, that's why they fall it, short it, because it, you're it, actually pushing against yeah. yourself. You're it not propelling like the ball. A, like that's how that works. And, and so the mechanics are an issue. Then, of course, there's the execution Another play in the second half of that game. Now, granted, it's 30-6. to six. The game's gone at this point. <laughs> at that point, it's a shit show. But they've got double move and dig from the outside receivers, one on each side, against a cover six look. Both routes are open. You've got tight end and running back off of a run fake, running quick little you know crossing routes after a depth of five yards. Those routes are open. Newton hits his depth. He's got four routes that are open, and he doesn't throw the football. Either he's not trusting his eyes or he's not comfortable, and that gets you to the execution part of this question. So all three of those, processing, mechanics, execution, there's problems in all three. And how does that get fixed in six days? It doesn't. So then there's one topic that I promised I would ask some of our listeners I would ask you about because it came up today. Sal Capaccio from WGR 550 actually tweeted about it, and I responded to him. With what, with what my hypothesis was. It's become a thing with Cam Newton throwing to only the left side of the field. And when you look at the numbers... Is he Rick Meyer? When you look at the charts, week two, Cam distributed the ball evenly around the field, even if he didn't take any shots down the field. Week three, Cam goes three of seven with one interception when trying to throw to the right sideline or the right, right hash. Week six... Cam comes back, proceeds to go 0 of 2 with one pick. 19 of his 25 attempts are to the left hash and sideline. And then this past week, Cam goes 1 of 3 when throwing to the right with two picks, 12 of his 15 attempts to the left hash and sideline. Now, this seems like an odd statistical quirk, but I almost feel like it's more dictated by by that offensive line. I feel like you guys are allowing him to be pressured and he's doing what comes natural to him, which is rolling out but knowing not to throw across his own body. Am I wrong? Or what's fueling this odd <laughs> this odd passing setup for Cam Newton over the last few weeks? Yeah, it's, it is odd because you look at his spray chart right now. It's like a NASCAR heat map. Like everything's a turn to the left and it's just a void in the right. Steven Ruiz over it for the win, uh, USA Today part of the USA Today Network. When Cam signed with New England, and actually dated back to last year is when he did it, because last year Cam had that foot injury. And he looked at all of his throws and he charted them all out. 
And on all of his throws to the right side of the field, he was missing them high. And he talked to Nate Tice, who backed up Russell Wilson at Wisconsin, who now works for The Athletic in their podcast. And they traced it to the injury in his foot. And they said that, look, when he's stepping towards the right, you see him sort of have some inconsistency with his launch point and his front step. And it's causing him to be unsure on these throws to the right side. That's where it flared up. And so this issue with him struggling and sometimes even just avoiding throwing to the right, the first thing that comes to my mind is that there's an injury thing there again. You know, it's it's back to this issue where he's not comfortable on throws to his right, his right whether it's, you know, the, the left foot is hurt, left ankle is hurt, something like that, because that's what it reminds me of. And especially when you see that throw that he double hopped to Bird where he's stepping in the bucket, it's like he doesn't want to stride forward for some reason. Mm-hmm. No, so it's, it screams injury. It was just, it was just, it just seems wild to think that that's a thing in the NFL. That hey, we have a quarterback who's only using half the field, yeah. and it, and yet he's not a rookie. He, no, he's a veteran. Yeah. And though I think, you know, what's interesting, you know, I was on another show and people asked like, how are you going to sort of get Cam going again? I think in a sense you kind of have to treat him if you're Josh McDaniels like a rookie. Like he's had limited time with you, limited time in the system. So you need to sort of do some things like you would do for rookie quarterbacks and sort of treat him that way. And I think conversely, if you're Buffalo, like that's how you defend him. You defend him like he's a younger quarterback. You take some of his quick reads away. You make him think. You make him get into his head because he's not comfortable with his playbook. That's how I think you have to coach him and that's how I think you have to defend him. And that's the crazy thing is trying to figure out the offensive identity of this team, because early on, here's the thing. As he regresses as a passer, I don't doubt that Bilicek knows he's being backed into a corner. But I look at what the overall identity of this team is, and I have a hard time finding it. I mean, your offensive line has been beat up, nicked up over the few weeks. You had Cannon who opted out. Rush yards seem to be petering out game over game over game. Then you look at the receiving options. Questionable wide receiver production. Harry has less than 200 yards. He's tied with a running back for targets. Edelman leads team in targets, but he has a 53% catch percentage. I I don't know what to do with that. And then what running back heavy approach. I mean, they're not targeted targeted as frequently as wide receivers, but they represent 50% share of your total receiving yards. They're just as useful. And that's always kind of been a staple of the Bilicek offense, but it's damning that the wide receiver production has crept back so far that it's close. And and then again, we talked about this ad nauseum last season. Only 13 targets for your entire tight end group. <laughs> Through seven yeah. games, 13 targets. You guys, it killed you last year not to have tight ends. You drafted guys at that position. None of that seems like it's bearing fruit. So I guess one of the things is, what is it on offense? What is your identity as an offense? Because that's always been the thing that's scary about the Patriots team. Yeah, and I think right now they don't really have one. I think if there's a possible identity, it's a run-heavy play-action offense. Now, the problem is, in the past two weeks, the past two games, they were down you know, 23-3, to 18-3. You can't really rely on the ground game in those situations. You know, they have to be a positive game script team. If they're down by two or more scores, they can't 
throw the ball right now to get back into those games. Well, and part and of so that, that has, puts so much pressure on their defense to keep these one-score games. Well, part of that has a lot to do with the turnovers. I mean, talking to your friend, which, hey, first of all, if I could buy you... Chris, if we could... We need to buy Schofield something nice because you found us Mike DeBate from Lockdown Patriots. And yeah, what's your favorite flavor of Seagram's? <laughs> Any. He's been ki- that. he's been killing it over on our AFCE shows. Last week we had him over there and he was talking about just the unbillichekian nature of this team. One of the most glaring things is the propensity for this team to hand the ball back to their opponents. Weeks one through three, the Patriots had three turnovers. Weeks three through seven, you had 11. 11 turnovers in four games. Is this just teams catching up to you guys and kind of exploiting tape? Is it sloppiness by your players and a lack of focus? Where do you place the blame for that? You know, I, I do think a lot of it is teams catching up to what they were doing early. You know, they've kind of figured them out. And you see that sometimes with teams when they have to make some adjustments in personnel. You know, you might have a a good start to the year because you don't have information to go on as a a defensive coordinator. Now you've got film on them, so you know what they want to do. You know what they can do. You know what they can't do. And so you know what you have to take away. And now it's really on Josh McDaniels and his coaching staff to figure out, all right, well, now that we can't do X, Y, and Z, here's the – you know, options one, two, and three now that we can do. The problem is it doesn't seem like they have those. Like everything they've tried hasn't worked. And then it gets back to, you know, the issues with mechanics, process, and execution like we were just talking about. It's just this snowballing problem right now that doesn't seem to have an easy fix. Well, one thing I will say is that the Patriots do not look, even even for as much as you guys have struggled, and I listen, no one has enjoyed talking about that more than me. Because I'm a petty son of a bitch. Matchup versus matchup, the Patriots seem like they are designed to give the Bills fits based on what we do poorly and what you guys do well. So I want to kind of talk about this. What do you like about this matchup and what concerns you? The first question I have, Patriots offensive line versus the Bills defensive line. How do you see that matchup playing out based on what you've seen from the Patriots offensive line over the last few games? I mean, that's a matchup that doesn't give me a ton of confidence right now, uh, partly because they've played. I was actually talking with Joe Marino about this just you know an hour or so ago. I think they've had, by my chart, in eight different offensive line combinations this year. You know, they've had guys banned up. They've had guys out. They had guys opt out. They can't get the combination that they want to then be successful. You know, I think they want – you know, Wynn, Tooney, Andrews, Mason, Illuminor from left to right. Those guys haven't always been healthy. And I, I think we're seeing Michael Wenu sort of creep up on Shaq Mason right now. Um, but this generally is just a matchup that I'm not a huge – like, let's put it this way. I don't know if there are really any matchups right now that I like, save for maybe the stalemate that could be Buffalo's wide receivers against this New England secondary. Outside of that, maybe New England's run game. Outside of that, I'm not too comfortable with anything. Well, let's matchup. talk about that then. Let's talk about that because that we just watched the Buffalo Bills play a football game where we didn't attempt our first handoff to a running back until the second quarter. This team has struggled to run the football. 
They are the captains of the struggle bus at this point. They're they're driving it and they populate it heavily. We don't do well on the ground. So even against a front seven that's been beat up a little bit on the ground like the Patriots have, we maybe don't have the personnel to exploit that. And so instead, what the Bills have done have is they go they go pass heavy. We articulated how that approach is actually what doomed our game against the Jets to being the Tyler Bass game. Yeah. It didn't have to be the Tyler Bass game. Our rookie kicker didn't have to win us that football game. But our offense dictated that it did by being pass happy inside the 30-yard line of the New York Jets. <coughs> that is a recipe for disaster against your New England Patriots. When you think about that, how... Where do you see your defense being able to win against this offense in the secondary? I think the the way that matchup, I think, works in New England's favor isn't so much Gilmore's going to cover, you know, Beasley or Diggs or J.C. Jackson's going to cover Beasley or, or, you know, Jonathan Jones is going to cover Davis. I think it's more this experienced secondary with McCourty and McCourty and Gilmore and Jackson. They can do some things schematically to confuse Josh Allen. And I think that's where you have to be as a defense against Josh Allen right now. I don't think you can play straight man coverage against this Bills defense because A, their receivers are good. And B, Josh Allen has been very good this year against man coverage. It's more zone looks that have given him some problems. So I think that's what you have to do. And that's not the and that as you saw in that uh, game against Seattle, that's not your strong suit. No, no, so no, no. They want to be a man team. Now, on the ground, ground and pound. I mean, the thing that scares me about this Patriots team is the physicality. Because I'm used to seeing this. I'm used to getting myself excited about. Hey, maybe this year we have it. And I remember Legarrette Blunt. I think it was a kickoff return. He took a kickoff return like 70 yards. And it wasn't even like he avoided contact. He just knocked everyone down. There's a physicality that the Patriots seem to find when they play the Buffalo Bills. And so in that way, we've really struggled trying to defend the run. I mean, until the second half of that Jets game, we were talking about it. We were laughing, cracking jokes. Because Frank Gore... Methuselah that he is was averaging 5.7 yards per carry in the first half against Buffalo. In that aspect, how do you like the matchup of your running backs and the interior of your offensive line against our linebackers and strong safety? I mean, I, I do like that in the sense that that's probably what the Patriots offense does best right now is run the football. And so if they could keep this in that sort of positive game script area, you know, then yeah, they can continue to rely on the run, keep the ball on the ground, not ask Cam Newton to do so much. But if this gets to be a situation where the Bills force a turnover, suddenly it's ten nothing, thirteen three, then it gets away from you quickly. It so he- really can. So if if they can force mistakes from Josh Allen and keep this a one score game, they've got a shot at winning it. If they can't, completely different. And then in just in terms of Bill Belichick and the fan base and what this game means to you guys versus what it means to Bills fans. I mean, 
Think about, I've been tweeting you for years with, I find historical pictures to back it up. But I've been talking about how this is essentially, we've been waiting for the sack of Rome. We've been waiting for it. You're a history nerd. I know you are, so you can appreciate this. We're the Visigoths, and we've yep. been circling Rome for years, just waiting for the fall. And now it's here. It genuinely seems like it's here. There's no one who's going to feel bad for the Patriots. But in terms of Bill Belichick, what would this game, win or loss, mean for him and mean for your franchise's just kind of season? I mean, if you guys pull a win out of this, to me anyway, this strikes me as a game where you guys, if you win this, this could very much propel you guys forward. It could spark a resurgence the way we've seen you guys do so many times when you've been down. Because Bill Belichick's a great coach. The best. I, I'm able to say it now that I'm distanced from it. <laughs> now, that, now that we're out of the heyday of Tom Brady and Bill Belichick kicking our teeth in on Sundays. And me having to drive home from Orchard Park. Yelling at Chris. Yelling at everyone else in the car. Chris, how many times did I ask for a beer? And you're like, you're driving. I'm not giving you a beverage. And I'm yelling at you all about it. Yeah. How many, well, let me ask you this. How many times have I unknowingly recorded you? I know. Oh, my God. Chris has chronicles. of. He calls it the chronicles of Drew Gear. Yeah. It's all recorded. Yeah. You bring in a lapel mic, attach it to your seatbelt, and the madness, you don't know you're being recorded. The madness, that, the madness that this man has harvested over the last 10 years. It's, it's incredible to me. So when you think about what this game means, if it means that much to us Bills fans, what does it mean to Patriots fans in the eyes of how they view Bill Belichick as far as how this game goes and how pivotal this is to the way the rest of your season goes? I mean, addressing how pivotal this game is, I'm going to make a reference now that's probably going to infuriate a good chunk of your listeners, but I'm going to do it anyway. In 2004 ALCS, before Game 4, Kevin Millar, first baseman for the Boston Red Sox, talking to Dan Shaughnessy, curly red-haired guy for the Boston Globe, said, don't let us win tonight. Don't let us win this game. You let us win this game, it's on now. We know what happened. Red Sox win that game, they come back, they win the series. Come I'm not going to lie. I'll say this. My roommate was a Yankees fan in college. There was like 20 kids on the floor who were all Yankees fans from downstate New York, like Long Island, New York City. Yeah. And I would blow into their room. I'd kick the door open with no shirt on and just go in there and give them the business every time they lost. I don't give a damn about baseball. I just like razzing people. Well, there you go. And when they lost to the when they lost to the Red Sox, every time I would go in there and give them shit. And that last game, you went in there and I almost felt bad. It was like I kicked open the door of a church and there's someone had died. <laughs> Yeah. But, I mean, that's that's what this game is because the Bills have the Patriots literally not just on the ropes. They're on the mat. Like, this is – I wrote it this week. I said it on my show. This is one week to save the season if you're Bill Belichick, if you're Josh McDaniels because you lose this game. You go to 2-5. and five. Division's probably out. I don't think you can really count on making a run for a wild card. So I think you have to have serious discussions about the trade deadline that comes on the following Tuesday. And so this is a critical game. And believe it or not, although you probably can believe it being the Pat's pulpit lurker that you are, <laughs> there are people 
questioning Bill Belichick, the general manager right now, which is perhaps a fair criticism. They have made some strange personnel decisions. It doesn't help when you turn on Sunday Night Football and see DK Metcalf, an actual alien, chase down Buda Baker from behind the way he did. And you remember that they passed on him twice for Juwan Williams and Nikhil Harry. Like, there's frustration right now among Patriots fans with Bill Belichick. Is it warranted? You know, maybe you could quibble with some of the decisions that he's made. He's brought you six Super Bowl reigns, so I don't really think it is, you know, six games into a season. But they lose this one. There's going to be, like, EI 98.5, they will be must-listen programming on Monday. Yeah, I'll be listening for sure. I can't wait to find it. I'm looking forward to it. Your prediction as to the final score. I think the... I'd love to sit here and be cocky and be arrogant and say Belichick's going to figure it out. But I, A, I can't do that. And B, you'd see right through it. You know me. You know everything I've said the past hour or so. I look at this game. I see it 21-10 Bills. Like, I don't, I, I don't see New England handing in this game. You know, Buffalo, yeah, they've had some struggles defensively. But do I think that the Patriots offense can take advantage of miscues from Josh Allen or somebody else? Not right now, I don't. Now, do I think the Bills have enough on offense, specifically in that wide receiver group, to hit on a couple of plays, make something happen? Yeah. Do I think Buffalo has enough on defense to force a turnover, maybe another multi-interception game from Cam Newton sitting here right now? Yeah. 21-10 Bills. That's how I see this one. Wow. So where can we find you on social media and where can we find what you have coming up this week? You just did a show with Matt Waldman, our friend. The, uh, the As we call him, the... Uh, <laughs> What is it? Baritone. Well, he's got that baritone voice. He's the Barry White of podcasting, of like draft analysis. He is the Barry White. Wald was amazing because like we were talking about Dak Prescott in that show. And he went into this like 10 minute discussion about like parenting. It was just like amazing. Like doing a show with Waldman, it's like I need to bring like a notepad and take notes. The guy's just incredible. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Mark Schofield, uh, USA Today, Touchdown Wire, Pat's Pulp with the Sco Show, uh, Bleeding Green, uh, QB Factory with Kiss, where we just make fools out of ourselves for 40 minutes or so a week. Uh, but on Twitter, it's probably the easiest way to find me at Mark Schofield. All right. We always appreciate Mark Schofield or if you live in Boston, Mark Schofield. You can find him at. Mark Schofield on Twitter, one of our favorite guests. One of our favorites, Chris, our keys to victory. Wow, it's a lot of keys. Bigger the keychain, more powerful the man. My keys are simple this week. Pretty straightforward, I think. First of all, exploit the Patriots' offensive line. The Patriots' passing attack has essentially hit the skids. And after intently watching their losses, I could say a fair degree that has to do with Cam just not feeling safe in the pocket or trusting that he has the time to allow his wide receivers routes to develop, I mean, which gives birth to all the bad mechanic stuff that we talked about with Schofield. New England comes into this game maybe the thinnest they've been on offensive line ever against Buffalo. Tooney, if he plays, is going to be nursing an ankle injury. The right tackle situation seems unsettled. I mean, there's a lot there. So with that said, you expect your defensive line. Now, I know they're hell-bent on not moving Jerry Hughes around. Trent Murphy is going to have to earn his fucking paycheck. Can we say that? Can I drop an F-bomb with that? You always do. Earn your paycheck this week because you need to. We have to have it. 
The second key, get your safeties in the game. I've been complaining for weeks about how little I've seen our safeties involved in our games. And the reason for it is pretty obvious. If you're playing zone defense and your defensive line can't get a pass rush, you need those guys on the back end to keep the lid on your bend but don't break cover two and cover three scheme. But that sucks because with the injury situation at cornerback two and Trey White not 100%, Hyden Poyer are one of the few talented and physical. Talent and physicality mismatches is what I'll call them. They're, they're the two guys you have left at your disposal who can go out there and make impact plays at any point in the game. We've neutered ourselves over the last month and a half of football by making them essentially babysitters for our linebackers, for, the, for our cornerbacks. But you saw it in the fourth quarter of the Jets matchup. When the D-line got rolling, Hyde and Poyer were all over the place. Tackles for loss, sacks, breaking up passes, being the players that they were when our secondary was at its best. In this game, against a team without the talent or inclination to go deep often, I don't care how you do it, but you have to make these guys playmakers. I need to see Hyde around the line of scrimmage providing some overwatch on running back screens or passes into the flat. A lot of the stuff that the Patriots have thrived on in their passing attack so far. I need to see Poyer out there in the box acting like an enforcer when they try to use tight ends or wide receivers in the middle of the field. I I need to see him helping out our linebackers in run support because they're going to, Chris, they're going to try to punch us in the mouth. I don't see them trying to air it out on this defense. Yeah, I have no idea what to expect on Sunday, even though the Patriots have been playing as poorly as they have. Well, and that's the thing. The reason you don't is because we have an undisciplined football team and you have no idea what who's going to show up. No. Which is why the third key is on Sean McDermott to clean it up. Listen, you just got a fat extension off the back of... Okay. <laughs> I was about to start saying some things I might regret. Let me compose myself. Compose it. We got help to go into the playoffs in 17. We missed an 18-19 wild card. Sean McDermott, it's time to put up or shut up. Okay? That's it. I'm sick and tired of this shit about how every year when you go up against the best of the best as head coaches or as quarterbacks, you wilt. I'm done. I need to see it. I Now that you've gotten your paycheck, you've got job security. Go out there and earn it. Have this team ready to play a game against a team that's going... Chris, Bill Belichick, how often do you see the team play undisciplined football? Never. And when they do, they usually rebound. Do you want to be the reclamation story of the Patriots season? Because you will be. If you go out there and play the type of football that you've allowed this team to play over the last three weeks, you will absolutely be... You'll be the story for all the wrong reasons. You'll be the story told of, hey, this is how the Patriots saved their 2020 season. They came, they went into Buffalo in a game that they were pegged to lose. But because their team was composed and they didn't shoot themselves in the foot with penalties and because they were physical and because they were mentally prepared, they were the better team and they somehow escaped Buffalo with a victory. And that was the turning point for their season. Do you want to be that person in this story? No. Okay, then Sean McDermott, go out there and do your fucking job. Get this team ready between the years. 
Because that's what this takes. The, the pre-snap stuff, that's all focus. That's all how plugged into this are you? How much have you studied? How ready for this are you? The physicality, that's all mindset. And that just comes from coaching. That comes from how are you prepped to approach this week? You go out there and you prove that you have the ability to clean it up and that you can finally, you know, I, I don't care about Josh, Josh Allen versus Tom Brady. That was a nice story. Hey, a, rook, a young quarterback could beat Tom Brady. No, you can't. Tom Brady's great, right? Yeah. He's excellent at what he does. But he's not the enemy. It's the guy who runs the whole Megillah. It's Bill Belichick. And that's not on a quarterback to beat Bill Belichick. That's not on a handful of talented defensive players. What we need to see is a coach who's ready to say, hey, the AFC East is mine now. I want it, and I'm going to take it from you. Here's the game. You go do it. And you know how you do that is by having your team look like it's ready to play. Go do that, Sean McDermott. Restore my faith in your ability to do your job. Your prediction, Chris. I believe uh, since we've been doing this podcast since uh, 2015, you have yet to pick the Patriots in a game. And I cannot pick the Bills until I see them beat the Patriots. And that does not count a Jacoby Brissett game or that one off in 11 against, against Tom Brady. I'm still... Rolling with the Patriots on this. I think it's going to be slightly low scoring and very close. I'm going 17 to 16, New England. You are right about one thing. In the history of this podcast, I have never picked against the Bills in this matchup. Because you're an idiot. And I'm not going to start now. All right. There's a Seagram's. I will see you in them in hell. There's that Seagram's bet. The Buffalo Bills have to win this football game. You have to. If you think if you think that you're capable of achieving the things that you aspired to in the offseason when you built this football team, this was the game that you did it for. This was the game. It's not the game against the Kansas Cities, the Tennessees. Those those teams are elite. They've had years of high level high level play, right? Yeah. And they, they, they worked their way. They earned it. They won. They won playoff games. Then they went to Super Bowls. They, they, they won their divisions and went on to play each other. The Buffalo Bills haven't accomplished anything like that. So before you can, it's like what we were talking about last week. It's over. All this talk about Super Bowls, and all this, it's over. Now you set out to do the thing that you said was your mission at the onset of this season. Steps before you, you know, you're jogging before you can run. You got to win the AFC East. You don't do that unless you can bury this football team. I think they pull it off. I think it's close. I think our teams are not great matchups for each other. But I think it takes a Tyler Bass. I think it's a field goal game. I think that if we can out-execute them, we will win by at least a field goal. I'm going to call 23-20. Buffalo pulls this thing out. Now, Chris, thank again, just a huge thank you to Mark Schofield for making time out of his busy schedule for this. Folks, go check out our AFC East Roundup podcast this week. We talk a little bit more with Mark Schofield about certain things regarding the Patriots' just brutal loss. I mean, if you want to hear some stuff that came out of that San Francisco game that we watched that might make you feel better, or at least as good as I do about this, go check it out. Also, I tell the story about how I was a felon in gambling. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tell the story never told before on this podcast about how I lost my ass as a better and also lost my ass as a bookie. Since the federal statute of limitations has passed, I'm okay with opening up to my listeners because I appreciate you people. Make sure you go check it out. That's our AFC's Roundup podcast. It's going to drop sometime later this week, probably about Wednesday night, would you say? Yeah, not probably about Wednesday night. It is always uploaded Wednesday night. <sighs> Chris, this has been a lot of fun. It's Patriots Week, baby, and I can't wait. But until Sunday, we got to get the hell out of here. Because if we win, we're going live after the game. Oh, okay. I'll bring the stuff. Until then, I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Kruger. Thank you to Mark Schofield. And this has been your Rock Pal Report. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.